Continuing with the chapter to be or not to be, is that the question? And we now come to some of the uh, uh, negative impressions of Nibbana and misunderstandings about it. There were many religious seekers at the time of the Buddha who held fundamentally materialistic, nihilistic views, and the Buddha was often reckoned as one of them although he categorically denied this. That means a materialistic view, meaning um, this, uh, this life has um, uh, no lives before it, there is no uh, uh, other lives, uh, lives after this, there is no, uh, no other uh, dimensions of, of existence, um, and uh, all we have is this material world, and our, our mind is, a, a, say, an artifact of function arising from the material world, and when the body dies, that's the uh, the end of, of everything. The life comes to an end, and uh, it's all finito. Whereas uh, my my uh, father, when he was a uh, a soldier in the in, in the British Army during the Second World War, he spent a lot of time in Africa and India, and so he picked up various different phrases uh, along the way from his um, uh, various different um, companies he was part of. He, he used to look after pack horses. He was a he was a horse man <laughs> during the not a kind of dramatic cavalry uh, person, but looked after pack horses, and uh, so he used to use this phrase "dandai finish mata mata," which means completely dead and gone. Well, <laughs> apparently, it was a phrase that some of his uh, his fellow soldiers used. It's probably some sort of Indian pidgin English "dandai finish mata mata," but the the mata would would be. Uh, like from uh, the uh, from uh, uh, from, uh, from the uh, Hindi or the the Sanskrit for death. So uh, the nihilistic materialistic view is that's that's it. It's a uh, there's a um, uh, a kind of um, negative or or I say destructive view about uh, the uh, the nature of the life experience and and the way that um, the uh, uh, the, uh, the function of living beings operates. And though this is extremely popular in uh, so Western Buddhist circles, many very well-known Buddhist teachers are um, uh, nihilistic and have uh, 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 ardently negate the idea of past lives, future lives, and, uh, and such like. And uh, uh, happy to, to uh, back it up with their own, uh, their own particular logic. So it's uh, it's not just something that was happening in the in the Buddha's time, but is extremely common uh, nowadays and probably prevalent in, in the West. So anyway, the, what the Buddha says about this, and this is a quote from the very rich and um, useful uh, Sutta. This is uh, from um, uh, Majjhima Nikaya, Sutta number twenty-two. That's called the Simile of the Snake, the twenty-second Sutta in the Middle-length Discourses. <coughs> I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some summoners and Brahmins thus, saying, The Samana Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not one who leads astray, and I do not proclaim this, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented. 
because both formally and now what I teach is dukkha and the, the cessation of dukkha. As I've uh, mentioned in a couple of previous readings, this is uh, um, an aspect of the, the Buddha's teaching, how he was often misunderstood and taken to be a nihilist, or that he was promoting uh, as a destructive or negative attitude towards uh, life and, and reality. And um, so this, this section that we're covering today uh, really relates uh, most directly to that, that uh, say, array of misunderstandings. He also described in the same discourse how it was that people gave rise to such misapprehensions. Here, Bhikkhu, someone has the view, this is self, this the universe. After death I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. They hear the Tathagata, or a disciple of the Tathagata, teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, biases, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for nibbana. They think thus, oh, So, I shall be annihilated, I'll perish, so I shall be no more. Then they sorrow, grieve, and lament, and, and they weep, beating their breast, and become distraught. So that, uh, that's what's uh, uh, very clearly spelt out there. That the, when you have that, um, that uh, say, life-affirming or eternalist view, what's called the sasata vada, right, that uh, I shall endure for all eternity, then when you hear the Buddha speaking about um, letting go and not being reborn and, uh, and such like, then there's the, the, uh, the, the assumption... Um, and he gives this whole sort of list of letting different kinds of letting go of uh, standpoints, biases, obsessions, the stilling of all formations, um, destruction of craving, dispassion, nibbana. I'll be annihilated. So, and if you remember, yesterday we were talking about this, uh, the uh, the snake in the grass that turns out not to be a snake. That, I mean, what happens to this? What happens to the snake when the rope is recognized? Nothing happens to the snake. There never was one. But it was funnily enough, um, uh, I was on this uh, retreat with uh, co-leading co a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, this this um, uh, Tibetan Lama, and um, his translator was this extremely serious uh, and uh, very very uh, uh, astute Danish fellow, um, and uh, Pema Kunsang, I think was his name. And uh, an extremely good translator, very, very good memory and very thorough. And uh, so in the course of teaching this retreat, we gave this example about the snake in the grass. And, uh, and uh, he very, very politely said, could I introduce something of my own here? <laughs> so, oh, yes, yes, please carry on. So, um, <clears throat> and so he said, uh, this is Eric Pema Kunsang who was telling the story then. He said... Uh, the uh, the other day I was um, <clears throat> I was walking along through the through the long grass, and I saw this round shape, and I thought, oh, it's just a piece of rope. <laughs> <laughs> so I carried on walking, and it was a snake. <laughs> <laughs> so both Rinpoche and I thought that was really definitely the translator could rise up and definitely tell their own story at that point. <laughs> So thereby, and thereby hangs a tale. 
even though the Buddha said that one should see Nibbana as unsatisfactory, as Dukkha, and for that conviction to be in accordance with Dhamma, which is called Anuloma Kanti, in accordance with truth, that I say is impossible. But to see Nibbana as free from Dukkha, and for that conviction to be in accordance with Dhamma, that I say is possible. So he's in that, that's a, a, a passage from the Book of the Sixes in the Anguttara. So the Buddha is saying, um, let, take it from me, if, <laughs> that uh, uh, Nibbana is, by definition, totally satisfactory. You can't if it if it's if there is dukkha involved, it can't be nibbana. So that that uh, so to see nibbana as unsatisfactory, you, maybe your idea of nibbana is unsatisfactory or feels threatening or off-putting, or, but the actuality of it can't be unsatisfactory. Otherwise, it wouldn't be nibbana. So he 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 states that very emphatically and directly there. That's in the, the book of the sixes. It seems that it was not uncommon for people, particularly those of a lustful or life-affirming bent, to have had a negative reaction to the Buddha's teaching, even in his own lifetime and face to face. Since those days, this misinterpretation of the teaching has been a recurrent theme. In the preceding dis discourses, the ones I just quoted, um, uh, the, um, from the simile of the snake, the Buddha outlines this presumption of nihilism as a mistaken view of his teaching, and then, through the contemplations on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, he leads his listeners to the path of awakening. Nevertheless, despite this clear description of the genuine path to happiness, the bhikkhu Aritta, who had occasioned this teaching after the Buddha had refuted his assertion that the pursuit of sensual pleasure was not an obstacle to enlightenment, uh, uh, Aritta was left, quote, Silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and with nothing to say. <laughs> so the, again, like the in the the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the, the root of all things, the first discourse in the in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, that the bhikkhus were were not delighted with what the Buddha said. Uh, this similarly, this um, this discourse, the simile of the snake, uh, that was given to Aritta. And Aritta had uh, who was known as Aritta, the vulture trainer. And uh, I'm not sure why, no one is quite sure why you'd be, you would be training vultures to do anything. But, uh, he was known as uh, Arita the vulture trainer, maybe. Somebody knows why you would train vultures? No. Nope. <laughs> I'm sure they mean... Hmm? It could well be a joke. Yeah. Uh, it, it could well be a joke, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a good suggestion. Do they sky burials Oh, not uh, uh, they're not in that part of the world. There's lots of forests there, but um, anyway, it's uh, it could well be some sort of wisecrack, because there's there's quite a few puns in this uh, in this particular sutta. Yeah, uh, maybe a, a vulture was like um, a uh, 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 maybe that has some sort of connotation of lustfulness because. Arita was trying to uh, p promote the view that uh, sexual intercourse should be totally allowable for monastics, and that their lust wasn't an obstacle to enlightenment, and that, uh, that this was all kind of a, mis a misreading of the Buddha's teaching. And so um, the Buddha uh, sort of <laughs> aims right at Arita's not just uh, sort of life affirming, but this sort of view that that um, that pursuit of, of uh, sense pleasure, uh, in particular in particular sexual desire. 
uh, was not a not an obstacle of any of any kind, and so uh, that the sutta is built around that. Also, this is the sutta where he uses the the um, the parable of the raft, using the the dhamma as a raft to cross over to the other shore. So, even though that you uh, you use the teaching and it benefits you, just as if you are, uh, you're on a, a a dangerous side of a, a river and you put together a, a raft of sticks and uh, ropes and and leaves and you paddle yourself across to the other shore which is safe and secure that uh, even though the raft has really helped you and enabled you to get from one shore, the, the dangerous shore to the safe shore you wouldn't uh, when you get to the other shore you wouldn't be so grateful to the raft that you carry it around with you and so lift it on your back and and walk with your your raft hitched up on your shoulder so it's in the same way the dhamma is a raft uh, that it gets you from the the dangerous shore to the safe the safe shore it gets you to safety but you don't uh, carry it around and, and uh, burden yourself with it. So it's using the teaching, but without uh, attachment to the teaching. So it's a very it's a very rich sutta. In uh, many ways, so it's number twenty-two in the Majjhima Nikaya, the the, uh, the uh, simile of the snake. But anyway, yeah. Even though the Buddha gave Arita a really you know, marvelous teaching, he still didn't agree. He was <laughs> was very disappointed that. Uh, the Buddha didn't go along with his his theory and uh, didn't affirm his his view. So he sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping, with head down, glum, and with nothing to say. It is because of the deep-rooted views of the sensory world as being solid and the source of happiness that the suggestion of non-attachment to it or of its essential emptiness is so threatening. And if that which we have held to be real and of value is revealed as ephemeral, like, uh, um, insubstantial, not solid, and not ours, what can we depend on? Where is any reality? The heart can become disoriented and feel fundamentally bereft. Hence the cry of anguish that the Buddha describes so accurately above, that uh, so I'll be enlightened, so I shall perish, I shall be no more. Here are a few wise voices of the current age um, uh, that reflect upon the same theme. So firstly, this is Ajahn Sujito in his wonderful book, The Dawn of the Dhamma, which is a commentary on the Dhammachaka Sutta, which we read out not last year, the year before last, was our, our winter retreat reading. Uh, so this is a, a passage from The Dawn of the Dhamma. Nibbana is often held to be the ultimate goal in Buddhism, and yet it is rather ill-defined. It is considered to be remote, indicative of a superhuman vision that sees the illusory nature of the world, and hence is free from grieving about its misfortunes. For many people, this gives Nibbana about as much appeal as an anaesthetic, uh, like going to the dentist and having a, a, a shot of... <laughs> of uh, Novocaine and gives Nibbana about as much appeal as an anaesthetic and a difficult to obtain one at that and then this is uh, Lumpur Cha speaking uh, in the, the talk No Abiding the worldly way is to do things for a reason to get some return but in Buddhism we do things without any gaining idea the world has to understand things in terms of cause and effect but the Buddha teaches us to go above and beyond cause and effect. 
His wisdom was to go above cause, beyond effect, to go above birth and beyond death, to go above happiness and beyond suffering. Think about it. There's nowhere to stay. We people live in a home. To leave home and go where there is no home, we don't know how to do that, because we've always lived with becoming, with clinging. If we can't cling, we don't know what to do. Oh, this phrase that he uses there, um, uh, above cause and beyond effect, knock hate mir pon, um, that actually gave the Thai, the, the Thai version of the book Taste of Freedom. It's called knock hate mir pon. Uh, so uh, that's the good enough translation. <laughs> and so it's a uh, knock means outside of. Hate is like hate to the the root or the cause. Uh, so outside of the cause. Uh, like beyond effect so uh, outside of cause and beyond effect is a, another way of the, the, the translator uses the word above here but knock would you say sutisa knock means outside of right so kind of it's uh, outside of cause and uh, beyond or, or, or the other side of um, of effect we don't know how to do that because we've always lived with becoming, with clinging. If we can't cling, we don't know what to do. So, and this is my commentary for a moment here. So in terms of experience in this life, non-attachment to the sense world and the prospect of Nibbana can seem a little off-putting. When lives after this one are also considered, from the same life-affirming position, the appeal can wane even further. So this is uh, Lumpur Chai in the same Dhamma talk. He says, So, most people don't want to go to Nibbana. There's nothing there, nothing at all. Look at the roof and the floor here. He's sitting under his kuti with the the the, uh, the, the room above and the uh, the floor below. Look at the roof and the floor here. The upper extreme is the roof, that's a becoming. The lower extreme is the floor, and that's another becoming. But in the empty space between the floor and the roof, there's nowhere to stand. One could stand on the roof, or stand on the floor, but not on that empty space. Where there is no becoming, that's where there's emptiness. And, to put it bluntly, we say that Nibbana is this emptiness. People hear this and they back up a bit. They don't want to go. They're afraid they won't see their children or their relatives. So this is a, 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 a as um, I said, it's a, a thereby hangs a tale. This is a long story, <laughs> an ancient story. And so that uh, people uh, find the the idea of nibbana or the, of not being reborn, it's on a on a felt uh, uh, on a felt level. Uh, it can be seen like a negation of all the things that we we hold dear: our friends, our beautiful planet, our, our loved ones, our dog. Yeah. I want to I want to go to heaven with my dog forever. <laughs> We're going to be I'm going to be reunited with Rover. This special pet-friendly heaven. I'm kind. Of, I'm joking, but I'm kind of not joking because some, there are people who are determined to be reborn with their pets and uh, have a very high estimate of the spiritual nature of their animals that they share their lives with. And uh, it's uh, the this uh, comes up over and over again, and over over and over again, and may be in the the lives of, of uh, people here, and so that. Uh, 
the idea of Nibbana not being reborn, it's like, ooh, that's a bit kind of cold. Oh, that's like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. Yeah, it's kind of off-putting. Like, mm, don't really like that. So that kind of off-putting quality of Nibbana. Um, uh, well, another of my pet theories is that this is why Pure Land Buddhism got very popular in uh, um, in East Asia, like Japan, uh, uh, China, um, and in the <coughs> uh, Vietnam, Korea, the, uh, the, the Pure Land um, aspect of, of Buddhism uh, is much more attractive because Pure Land Buddhism, it, uh, if, I'm, if I can represent it accurately, the idea is that by devotion uh, to Amitabha Buddha, uh, who is the, the ruler of the Western Paradise, the Pure Land, and by reciting the name of Amitabha Buddha, Namo Amitabha Buddha, Nami Omot, Namo Amitofo, Namo Amitabha Buddha, that with that great devotion and sincerity, you can, um, through that your your devotional practice, you can get reborn in the Western Paradise, and so then you are reborn in the Pure Lands, and um, you have a really, really, really long life as an Anagami, and then you become enlightened from the Pure Lands. You become, you reach Arahantship. Well, uh, having been in the Pure Lands for a long time, so it's like a really long stint in a really, really nice retirement home <laughs> with all your favourite people and none of your no difficult people and and your favourite pets. <laughs> and again, I'm kind of trivialising it, but I'm kind of it's kind of accurate too. There's this there's this um, wanting a really, 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 really long time in a beautiful place where you're, you're, there's still the sense of being a person amongst with other other people but it's this and then the Amitabha Sutra um, which they uh, certainly in the city of 10,000 Buddhas and in Chinese monasteries I've stayed in they recite it goes into extraordinary detail about all these beautiful trees and flowers and birds and music and flavors and scents and all this kind of glorious sense um, kind of pu purified and beautiful and delightful sense activity that's there in the Pure Land and it's ruled by Amitabha Buddha there's, a, there's this eternal Buddha presence that, that's there. So my, my pet theory is that um, because you, you, in the Pali canon you also have the pure abodes, the, the Sudhavasa, and the, uh, so the, uh, but they are uh, only accessible to Anagamis. So in order to um, be born in those Sudhavasa, the, the pure abodes, which are up in the, the sort of higher Brahma realms, then you have to have reached the level of, of a non-returner, an anagami, which is one notch below arahatship. So, whereas in the northern Buddhist world, it's just devotion to Amitabha Buddha is what uh, gets you to the rebirth in the Pure Lands, but it doesn't require the realization of, of uh, being a, a non-returner. In the southern Buddhist world, the, the necessary condition to be born in the pure abodes is to be an anagami. Only anagamis get in. So you have um, the, the Sudhavasa, the, the five pure abodes. They do have the same kind of mythology in that, um, that either you're, you're an anagami when you're, you're born, uh, uh, at the end of your life as a human being or as a devata, you're the, an anagami. So when an anagami passes away, then they're born in one of those five realms. And, um, and so it's, it's said in, in terms of Buddhist cosmology that those were the only five, during the, the Buddha's career as a bodhisattva, those were the only realms that he was never born in, because once you're born in those realms, then you necessarily will become an arahant in those realms. 
So to be a Buddha and to keep being born over and over again, then he uh, he was not born in those uh, in those five uh, uh, pure abodes. But uh, if uh, one passes away as an anagami, then uh, one is born in one of those five realms, and then uh, depending on the degree of spiritual um, development, you, some uh, some anagamis are uh, uh, become arahants at birth. So you reappear. You don't actually have a, a kind of physical birth. So you just sort of appear as a full-scale being in those realms. And the ones who are very, very ripe uh, realize uh, are, uh, they uh, they realize arahantship at birth. So, if, say for example, Pukusati, the one who met the Buddha in the in the potter's shed and had that dialogue in the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. So he had that uh, the. Um, that experience, he was born in the Aviha Brahma world, uh, that's one of the Sudavasa, and um, that uh, he became an arahant as soon as he was born there. So then, that uh, uh, then, or it might be that you arrive as an anagami and you you live there as an anagami for um, uh, a long time, and then you reach arahantship while you're in the Sudavasa, or you have a few lifetimes in the Sudavasa as an anagami, and then. Uh, you uh, reach arahantship uh, later on after a few lifetimes in the Sudavasa, but you're always born in those realms and reach arahantship from there. So my my theory is that that um, that image of uh, reappearing in a, a super duper um, uh, beautiful heaven that's got a really, really long lifespan and things are really really blissful, and then reaching arahantship from there that got that the appeal of that like oh that's a, well if you've got to go to nibbana well that's a nice sort of before before you pop off and stop being reborn you get a really really nice long holiday you get a kind of really good cruise for for a long time that's that's deeply satisfying and then finally kind of okay okay like eighty thousand eons of this that's enough it's time to go now and uh I'm, again i'm kind of trivializing it but i'm but I'm also, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't what I feel is accurate. So that um, that element of having to be an anagami to be born in those realms got, got missed out when it, uh, the teaching went to the, to the north. But um, I feel it's, it's derived from this, this uh, fear of Nibbana, or the, sort of the, the way that the habits of self-view meet the idea of not being born again because the, uh, if there's an attachment to the body the personality attachment to being an identity then not being born again feels like death it feels like something that something that we have is being lost something that we are is being snuffed out and um as the, the but as the buddha said in that that passage in the simile of the snake um they say that the buddha teaches uh, the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, and I do not proclaim this, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented. So he's saying, that's not what I'm teaching. <laughs> that's not what I'm teaching. And so he, uh, uh, but he, uh, uh, he was very patient <laughs> in, uh, in, so in dealing, dealing with this. And so ever since the time of the Buddha to the present time, then there's this... Um, uh, the sort of need to to kind of get a sense of of how nibbana is not annihilation, but it's rather uh, it's a it's a, uh, a a way of describing uh, absolute spiritual fulfillment. So just to continue a little bit uh, before I open things up for some dialogue. Uh, 
It's interesting to note that in the Magandya Sutta, which is Sutta number 75 in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, a discourse addressed to a dedicated life affirmer, who was of the understanding that the health and well-being of his physical body was Nibbāna, so that was in the earlier reading, the Buddha describes how uninterested in earthly pleasures one of the devas would be, since their experiences of pleasure are so much more refined and acute. He then goes on to say to Magandya that the reason why he, the Buddha, has renounced sense pleasures is simply because, and this is a, so this is a quote from Majima 75, there is Magandya, a delight, apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. Uh, as, it, uh, as it says there, so what he said to Magandya is, uh, Magandya, what do you think? Um, uh, uh, a deva uh, living up in the Nanda, Nandana grove in the, in the heaven of the 33 gods, um, say a deva, a deva prince, if you were a deva prince surrounded by 500 uh, deva nymphs with dove-like feet, um, would you uh, be interested in the, uh, the pleasures of life as you experience them here in the world? And Margani says, well, no, I wouldn't be interested at all because the, the pleasure of being a Deva Raja up in the Tavatinksa heaven and a, you know, playing around in a Nandana grove with 500 nymphs, well, that's you know, no, no comparison. You know, why would I be interested in worldly pleasures of the, the human realm if I, if I was able to experience that? And then the Buddha then makes this comment, so, Magandhya, <laughs> There is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. So he's saying that renunciation is not based on on uh, life negation, but rather, you know, I can enjoy myself even more <laughs> through the enlightened mind has an even uh, more profound and complete quality of of uh, bliss. So uh, there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures which surpasses divine bliss. So it was not often that the Buddha used this kind of phraseology, intimating, as it does, a heart motivated by the love of pleasure, albeit a supra-divine bliss. He employed it here because it was the currency that had value for his interlocutor, the person he was speaking with. And it succeeded in leading Magandya, soon after this exchange, to Arahatship. The vast majority of the time the Buddha preferred to use the quote, dukkha and the ending of dukkha, unquote, language, as he knew that, ultimately, this would bring the most beings to full realization and unshakable freedom of the heart. It's also uh, in that uh, the, a, a book called uh, The Pilgrim Karmanita that I mentioned that uses the story of the encounter of the Buddha with Pukusati as its basis. The, the, the hero of the, the, this um, novel that was written by a Danish author, Karl Gillerup, uh, the he changes the name Pukusati to Karmanita, and karma is sense desire or sense pleasure. So um, being called Karmanita is rather like being called Lusty or Randy. It's like, so it kind of gives you a clue as to the, his sort of life-affirming and uh, sensualist nature. And so that the, the author, Karl Gellerup, extends the dialogue between the Buddha and, and Karmanita, uh, and so whereas Pukusati, as the Buddha is giving his explanation about the, the elements, Pukusati realizes, I think I know who I'm sharing this room with. <laughs> and he recognizes the Buddha and pays respects and, uh, and, and uh, declares his discipleship. 
in this in the story in this novel, the pilgrim Kamanita, Kamanita does not recognize the Buddha and takes offense at what the Buddha is saying, disagrees with him. And the author, Carl uh, Gelarup, takes quite a, a number of things from the Magandhya Sutta uh, and sort of puts them in as uh, like Arita in a similar way that Kamanita is trying to say. But you, but uh, but you 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 can't uh, you can't say that because the, the the Buddha would be not wouldn't be negating life. He wouldn't be wanting to end life. He is uh, he is the, the blessed one. He is the he is the, the the noble one, the enlightened one. He would never talk in this negative and, and kind of sour, critical, life negating way. So um, <coughs> that uh, <coughs> that story borrows uh, from these these various different suttas to emphasize that that kind of life-affirming, eternalist view. And I, I feel it was very skillful of the author, um, Carl Gellerup. He wrote it in 1906. And he was, in a sense, giving voice to the, uh, the life-affirming European mentality that would, or the, the criticisms that were made in, the, uh, in, the, in Europe uh, about Buddhism being a, a nihilistic religion. It was, it was an anti-life and the, blaming the... the Criticizing the Buddha as a, and Buddhism as a, a really negative teaching, so that the part of, the author had been a Christian theologian, and he'd um, become disaffected with Christianity. So part of his uh, his purpose in writing the book was to, uh, in a sense, illuminate uh, illumine these uh, Buddhist themes. And uh, his hero, Karmanita, is a sort of uh, gives voice to all these misunderstandings and like saying, but. But this is wrong. This can't be what you're saying. Can't be true. And, and so uh, that was one of the reasons why I put so much effort into editing it and, and um, making a new edition of it because I felt that the author did a wonderful job of um, really understanding the, the Buddha's teaching and, and how it had been misunderstood, and then using the story and a kind of an engaging um, uh, tale that he he puts together uh, to uh, say. Demonstrate how those misunderstandings happen, and how um, the uh, the the Buddha tries to uh, uh, elucidate, make it clear why uh, how Karmanita is not getting the not getting the message, but still uh, Karmanita uh, uh, fails to to understand. Uh, I won't let you know what happens at the end. But, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it it goes on that the hero. Uh, dies about halfway through the book and then it continues in various different realms as he does get knocked down by that famous cow uh, along the way. Also, Carl Gellerup got the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1917, so he was no slouch in terms of the literary world. So I'll pause there for a moment. So if there any questions or thoughts, reflections? Yes? Literature. No, for his body of work. It's interesting that uh, he... he um, <clears throat> it was only after he started writing another couple of Christian books that then they gave him the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, for about 20 years, he, all his books were on Hindu and Buddhist themes. And that uh, uh, I feel he was... It's amazing the, the degree to which he understood the teaching because he didn't really have any kind of um, personal teacher. He he studied under um, Paul Doyson, and uh, 
he used Dyson's translations, and uh, he'd been very Dyson had been very influenced by Schopenhauer, but he didn't really have any kind of personal Buddhist teacher. Um, but he seems to have got a real uh, acute understanding of Dhamma, and particularly this area of of how <laughs> the Buddha was not a nihilist, um, but also. It wasn't sort of presenting nibbana or uh, liberation as some kind of going off to some sort of super heaven, and uh, it, to me it's amazing how how he he came to that understanding, um, and uh, uh, it's it's a bit of a mystery. I've had uh, some Danish people looking up his life story in the uh, in the Danish National Library and trying to get more information about him, but somehow it just sort of floated into his consciousness and his own insight or his uh, understanding just to, uh, was was very accurate so when i did the updated version of the book I, there was no nothing in terms of of view, of views or representation of the teaching that i, I had to tweak there's a couple of places where he hadn't he didn't know about particular vinaya rules but i i didn't have to to tweak any kind of um, dhamma principles it was amazing so uh, Oh, I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, that was uh, one of the reasons I feel it's a, it's a good uh, resource book because it's a, um, it gives a, a very helpful exploration of this, um, this area of Dhamma where it's so easy to misunderstand and that, and particularly in a life-affirming culture that we have in the in the West that uh, there's uh, a, um, a kind of vision that he, that he presents and an understanding of Dhamma that, that's really, really helpful. Okay. Yes. Ajahn, um, is Arahant the same as Buddha? Well, the Buddha was an Arahant. But uh, a Buddha, the, so the state of liberation is exactly the same. The state of liberation is exactly the same, but a Buddha uh, has a much uh, more fully developed range of of capacities, so that he the the Buddha has developed the ten paramitas to to completeness to uh, to the the full possible degree. So then, uh, the a Buddha's ability to teach and also having the uh, the skill to found a monastic order and to establish it to to last through time is something that arahants don't have. So does it mean that the arahants uh, have different uh, level? Like Bahi, he died. He was arahant. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he a Buddha too? No. no. no the the, um, the uh, in terms of arahantship. That Bahia was so he got the award for being the quickest to understand and realize the teaching. You know, the Buddha said that the, he's the one who's understood fastest and realized arahantship quickest, just in the in a few minutes. Um, but the state of liberation, just like I, I was quoting that passage from that discourse of the Buddha to Mahanama, saying even a, a layperson. So when he's giving advice to a layperson on their deathbed, saying that the state of liberation of that person if they if they fully realize the cessation of identity sakaya niroda it's their 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 state of liberation is exactly the same as someone who's been an arahant for a hundred years so the uh, so the state of liberation for for a buddha and an arahant is exactly the same but 
the range of skills that a Buddha has is far, far greater. So an Arahant might not have any psychic powers. Like Sariputta had no psychic powers. So does it mean that they have to be born to develop themselves to become a Buddha then? No, no, no. no in terms of the Theravada understanding, once you're, uh, once you're an Arahant, then you, you don't get born again. It ver- in the northern Buddhist world, there are, ver- there are varieties of options. <laughs> but in the southern Buddhist world, once you're an arahant, then then uh, you 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 don't then existence and non-existence don't apply. There's no more rebirth. The Buddha entered parinibbana. That means he, he he's gone beyond all reckoning. Reappears doesn't apply, doesn't reappear, does not apply. And so those who attain Arahant, they are similar like Buddha. Yeah. Is yeah. Really... So the uh, uh, Buddha has got uh, the, the range of skills they've developed over many, 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 many lifetimes. So that the, the uh, loving-kindness, uh, wisdom, patience, uh, honesty, uh, generosity, renunciation, all of the, the, the ten parameters, all of those have been developed to the fullest possible degree. So when a Buddha uh, appears in the world, then they have a, a huge range of, of skills that they can draw upon in order to, uh, to help other living beings. That's my understanding of it. But when the Buddha, when when the when there is the passing away of a of a Buddha, then it's a, again they the, there's nothing said or nothing sayable uh, about uh, the uh, the the nature of a uh, of an enlightened being after parinibbana, and so that the 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 teachings are incredibly uh, consistent on that, and that because. Uh, the ordinary perceptions are of in being an individual, time, place. That these are, are um, perceptions that the mind forms. We we say, born here, this person uh, was born. This person passed away. We see, we create the idea of beings existing as individuals in time and, and space, and so all of those categories are falling away for an enlightened being. So uh, it's uh, and our, even our idea of an existent being is is a conditioned perception. So that uh, uh, the um, so over the centuries, many many people tried to come or came up with theories or ways of speaking about like Buddha lands or, or that uh, the, the Buddhas sort of only the they, the Buddhas all, all still exist in their own Buddha realms. And they just sort of project into the human realm the the. The illusion of you know birth in Lumbini and then life in Kapilavatu and then uh, that's all just a kind of a a, a, a a kind of movie show a projection that's sort of uh, displayed from another realm. So you have some sutras like the uh, the Dharma Flower, the the Avatamsaka Sutra that talk about that actually all the all the Buddhas that have ever been and ever will be they they're all existing now and that we're just uh, received the the projection of the the Buddha Gautama's life story, and we're living in the the aftermath of that. But the, you, the, the, those Buddha Gautama and all the other Buddhas still exist, uh, 
in their own dimension. But in the Theravada world, you have none of that. It doesn't... Uh, then what about those karma then, uh, the arahant, those karma that they have, it's just... Finito. Dandai finish matamata. <laughs> 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 so the, an arahant, so, so if, you, if you are an arahant, if there's some karmic residues that uh, have been created from this life or other lives, so then it's like, okay, all debts are being called in, yeah. Or oh, so this is a uh, sister uh, Tejasar's. Uh, there's <coughs> no no more deferred payments. So all karmic debts get paid off in in this lifetime, uh, but they get uh, they get paid off. Um, say and uh, say like Angulimala, you know, he was he was an arahant. He had a lot of karmic debts to pay, <laughs> but uh, the when so even as a monk, even as an arahant, he would be attacked by people or as it's, it's described in the sutta how he would come back from the arms around with his head bleeding or his arms bowl broken and it seems like not just for people throwing rocks at him and stuff but like branches would fall off trees and land on his head and or tiles would fall off a roof and, and, and land on him because he created so much violence there was a the the karmic uh, residue of, of his violent actions was still reaching him so the, the buddha said uh, to him, bear it, Brahmin, bear it, because you are experiencing the result now of actions that, um, were you not enlightened, would you would experience for many thousands of years, many hundreds of thousands of years, you know, in the lower realms. So that uh, the the fact that he's an arahant, there's still some some debts coming in, but they're they're much much milder, or they're they're they are felt in a uh, they they take shape, they take form in a much more mild way than if he wasn't an arahant. <laughs> I thought Buddha said everybody can be like him uh, to become Buddha. It says that in the Lotus Sutra, you never find that being said in the Pali Canon. <laughs> <laughs> then you say it's kind of like a Christian that um, there's only a God and the rest is just a. In Christian, they say um, uh, there's. It's only the God that create all these people, and nobody can become God. But I thought Buddhism is like uh, we are all equal, that we all can become a Buddha, and Buddha is fully enlightened. So that means Arahant haven't been fully enlightened at all, is it? No, Arahant is fully enlightened, but uh, so that the um, it's in it's uh, in the Theravada perspective, you know, someone who has made the resolution to become a Buddha, they, uh, they're born over and over again. They, they put off their arahatship to be born over and over again. So they develop all of the paramitas. There, there's, there's many, many different perspectives on this. But it's... <clears throat> so all beings, anybody here could make the resolution to be a Buddha. If you want to, but it's not like in the Lotus Sutra. In the Lotus Sutra, it says all beings will become Buddhas. That's the sort of uh, when Sariputta is told, "Don't worry," because you have this this passage where Sariputta is saying, "Oh, I'm so miserable. Oh, my miserum. I'm so upset. I've blown it. I'm an arahant, and I can't become a Buddha. Damn." I'm so disappointed. I can't become a Buddha, and then they say, "Well, actually, Sariputta, that's not the case because that was 
that was just an illusion that the, the we we uh, the Ara, arahantship was spoken about as being the end of the path just like uh, the uh, <clears throat> just to sort of keep you going during the times of despair and difficulty and then they, there's the parable of the the uh, the magic city in the as they're crossing a desert and then the caravan leader realizes oh all the people in my in the caravan they're getting really despondent and tired and hot and thirsty and they all want to give up so I'll just create this illusion of a magic city in the middle of the desert and then they have the illusion of having refreshment and rest and water and that it's not really there it's not really the end of the path but uh, that'll that'll make them that that feeling of oh, okay now we go in the cool shade and we can drink water and we can bathe and eat so then they are, they feel encouraged they can keep going so that nibbana is presented as this illusion so this is where the Lotus Sutra is making a very, very different story than what you get in the Pali Canon. So it's up to individuals to decide for themselves what they consider to be real. <laughs> but that, that is the, then Sariputta is then, then you have a, oh, this is amazing, how great is the joy, fantastic, amazing. So I haven't blown it by becoming an Arahant. Actually, I can still carry on and become a Buddha. Hooray, hooray, hooray. So that's that's what it says in the Lotus Sutra. That's paraphrasing the Lotus Sutra. But you don't find anything like that in the Pali Canon. But it's uh, it's it's difficult to um, uh, to sort of discern because uh, what the uh, what the sort of original perspective was because there's no place in the Pali Canon where anyone ever asks the Buddha, um, "Can I become a Buddha too?" No one asks him. Which is kind of strange because you look towards your spiritual teachers as a sort of mentor and you want to follow their example and you want to be like them. So it's, it's, a, it's a strange absence. Do you understand what I mean? Like there's a, there's a, there's a gap there. It's like as if in, you know, there were all these uh, mats here and there was a sort of, there was a, a spot where there was no mats, no chairs, no people. Like, what's, what, what's this gap doing here? So there's this kind of gap in the Pali Canon that where nobody asks the, the Buddha, um, how did you become a Buddha? Nobody asks him. Nobody asks him. And can, can I become a Buddha too? And if I and uh, is it a good idea to become a Buddha as well? And if if it is, how do I do that? No one asks him. Only in the later years, about four hundred years, five hundred years after the Buddha, you have um, a uh, uh, <coughs> a around the time that Mahayana Buddhism was beginning in India, then you have some Pali literature, that then you have Sariputta coming to the Buddha saying, Venerable Sir, how is it that you became a Buddha? What were the causes? What were the reasons that you became a Buddha? Uh, and so all those questions get asked, but that's 500 years after the, the Buddha's life. And so you get that in the, I think it's the Buddha Wangsa um, in, the, in Pali. But before that, so in the Pali canon itself, no one ever asked that question. Is it possible that the Pali canon is some missing? Uh... That's my theory. One of my many pet theories. I think there was some editing went on. That's my suspicion. Um, but anyway, it's a it's a mysterious it's a, it's a noticeable absence because you think, well, somebody would ask, why doesn't anybody say anything? That's strange. So anyway, we'll we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, those are good questions. 
I've ri- uh, there's there's a lot been written about this. It was one of the chapters I left out of the island because it got so big that I, I uh, left it out. But there is a um, uh, I, I took it out as a, a chapter. It was about a seventy-page chapter. So Ajahn Pasano said, "I think this is getting a bit over the top." <laughs> <laughs> so we just decided, "Well, should we do this whole yeah, Arahat Bodhisattva um, dialogue?" So I just took it out, but I published it as a as a separate article. So there's a a version of it in Buddha Dharma magazine called uh, "The View from the Center." Where can I get this? You, it's in Buddha Dharma magazine, but I can print you up a copy, and you can get the full version. It's, there's a, there's a book I'm doing of of, of articles I've written um, that should be printed this year. So, but uh, you don't have to wait. <laughs> if you survive the night, I'll give, you, I'll give you a copy tomorrow. If you survive the night, just keep breathing, and I'll give you a copy tomorrow. That's all you have to do: is keep breathing. Okay, so uh, to continue a little bit. Another example of the misapprehension of this approach is found in an incident which occurred early on in the Buddha's teaching career when he met the wanderer Diganaka, which means long nails. Diga is long, Naka is fingernails. So <clears throat> He was a, a wanderer with long fingernails. Master Gotama, my doctrine and view is this. Nothing is acceptable to me. To which the Buddha replies, This view of yours, Agivesana, nothing is acceptable to me. Is not at least that view acceptable to you? <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. Well, if this view of mine were acceptable to me, Master Gotama, it would all be the same. It would all be the same. One can almost see the dusty, long-nailed and dreadlocked fellow wagging his head and looking at the floor there in the Boar's Cave on Vulture Peak. <clears throat> you can still visit that today. If, if any of you have ever been to to Gichikuta, Vulture Peak in near Rajagaha, you uh, <clears throat> as you get to to the close to the top where you find the um, the Buddha's Kuti, just on the right hand side as you climb up the path, there's a, a little cave uh, just to the the side of the path, and that apparently is the Boar's Cave where this discourse was given to Diganaka. Agivesana, there are some Samanas and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. Everything is acceptable to me. There are some Samanas and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. Nothing is acceptable to me. Among these, the view of those Samanas and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is everything is acceptable to me, that is close to lust, close to bondage, close to delighting, close to holding, close to clinging. The view of those Samanas and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is nothing is acceptable to me is close to non-lust, close to non-bondage, close to non-delighting, close to non-holding, close to non-clinging. When this was said, the wanderer Diganaka remarked, Master Gotama commends my view, Master Gotama commends my view. The Buddha, however, then disabuses Diganaka. So then, even though Diganaka thinks, hooray, I got it right, the Master is, is a is affirming my view. The Buddha says, well, 
That's not the whole story. So he disabuses Diganaka of the idea that he's totally in the right. He goes on to point out how clinging to views inevitably causes conflict. He then describes a process of meditation on feeling that will lead to liberation. While listening to this discourse, Diganaka realized stream entry. Meanwhile, the Venerable Sariputta, who had been ordained as a disciple of the Buddha for a fortnight at this point, and was standing behind his seat fanning him, realized complete enlightenment then and there. So that's a significant thing. Those who uh, have the doctrine and view that you have to be uh, absorbed in jhana to realize total enlightenment. Or, uh, <coughs> uh, Sariputta was standing behind the Buddha fanning him, like keeping the mosquitoes off, or keeping him cool. You know. And so that uh, he was the, the attendant, uh, and he'd only been a bhikkhu for two weeks. So uh, he um, he was hearing this discourse, and then he re- realized arahatship while he was standing there fanning the Buddha. In another discourse, in another discourse, the Buddha employs a memorable image to describe the limiting nature of nihilistic attitudes and how aversion can be just as strong a bond as attraction. So this is the Panchataya Sutta once more. The Tathagata Bhikkhus understands this thus. These good summoners and Brahmins who describe the annihilation, destruction and extermination of an existing being at death, through fear of personality and disgust with personality, keep running and circling around that same personality. Just as a dog bound by a leash, tied to a firm post or pillar, keeps on running and circling around that same post or pillar, so too these good summoners and Brahmins, through fear of personality and disgust with personality, keep running and circling around that same personality. All that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, seeing the escape from it all, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. Perhaps the finest expression of the causes of these two strands of wrong view, eternalism, Sasatavada, and annihilationism, Uchedavada, comes in a passage from the Itivuttaka. So this is Itivuttaka, uh, pas- uh, Sutta number 49. This was said by the Lord. Bhikkhus, held by two kinds of views, some devas and human beings hold back, and some overreach. Only those with vision see. So to hold back means to, to not go far enough, and to overreach means to go too far. And how bhikkhus do some hold back? Some devas and humans enjoy being, delight in being, are satisfied with being. When Dhamma is taught to them for the cessation of being, their minds do not enter into it or acquire confidence in it, or settle upon it or become resolved upon it. Thus bhikkhus do some hold back. And how bhikkhus do some overreach? Now some are troubled, ashamed and disgusted by this very same quality of being. And they rejoice in the idea of non-being, asserting, Good sirs, when the body perishes at death, this self is annihilated and destroyed and does not exist any more. This is true peace. This is excellent. This is reality. Thus bhikkhus do some overreach. How bhikkhus do those with vision see? Herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Having seen it thus, one practices the course for turning away, for dispassion for the cessation of what has come to be. Thus because do those with vision see.
It's important to note that the last paragraph more describes a method of meditation practice than merely another philosophical position. These various teachings point to the fact that the answer to the conundrum of being and non-being is to be found in reshaping the issue, mostly by the way in which it is seen. The advice given in the last passage closely matches the practice of vipassana, insight meditation. This is comprised of, firstly, the calm and attentive observation of the arising of all patterns of experience. Secondly, it involves the seeing of all such patterns through the reflective lens of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. Lastly, in the culmination of the process, there is the remainderless relinquishment of all experience. There is the complete acceptance of all that arises and no confusion about the fact that all patterns of experience are of the same dependent in insubstantial nature. Whatever form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness there are, past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all should be seen as they really are through true wisdom thus. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. This last passage is from the Anathalakana Sutta that we chant very often. Ne uh, tang mama, this is not mine. Ne so hamasmi, I am not this. Name so me ata, this is not myself. The evidence for being, the arising of things, is seen and seen through. The evidence for non-being, the cessation of things, is seen and seen through. Both are thus let go of through perfect understanding and the heart experiences release. Oh, it's also um, this kind of uh, nihilistic attitude. It, it doesn't just arise as a philosophical position, but also it can be there in the way that we practice meditation. Just, I want to get rid of this, I want my, th my, my thoughts to stop. I want to stop feeling, I just want to, everything to shut down, and then I'll be peaceful. So, anyone ever had that kind of thought? <laughs> I certainly have. My first uh, couple of years of <coughs> attempts at meditation practice in Thailand, there was this feeling, of, I wish this thing would just shut up. <laughs> Being one who is very um, uh, prone to keep going, to keep talking, mentally and and, and verbally, so that the, the idea that if the mind would just stop chattering, everything would be fine. But um, so that that a nihilistic attitude can can uh, easily creep into the the whole way that we we meditate. And so uh, I think these are also helpful teachings. Uh, and this description from the Itivutika about uh, how do those with vision see? One sees as what has come to be as having come to be. This is an arisen thing. This is an arisen thought. This is an arisen feeling, a mood. Uh, having seen it thus, one practices the course for turning away, for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. So, that, okay, well, this is a thing that's arisen. So, it, it's whether it's beautiful or ugly, interesting or not, it, it is just this. It's just an arisen form, that's all. So, then there's uh, the cultivation of dispassion for it, and then as it fades, and there's, there's no thing that is, is lost. No thing that is has been identified with. But that um, there's an interesting speaking of Buddhist cosmology, and as we have been today, so lots of stories about past lives and future lives and other realms. Uh, another aspect of um, Buddhist cosmology, which is really kind of interesting, 
is there's a, a one of the high Brahma realms, which it's it comes just below the Sudavasa. So you have all of the the, the first uh, first twelve Brahma realms are related to the four jhanas. So the first three are fir- the first jhana, the second three are the second jhana, third uh, and fourth. Are, so that they uh, the first four jhanas are related to the the the, the lower twelve Brahma realms, uh, and then you have a a, um, a realm that's called the Asanyasata Brahma realm, and then you have the um, the Sudavasa, the five pure abodes above them. Uh, I think I'm remembering this correctly, but anyway, so along these lines. So after the the lower Brahma realms. You have this special one that's called the Asanya Sata Brahma realm, and then you have the five pure abodes, and then above the pure abodes you have the formless Brahma realms. So that's the um, uh, the I think there's there's um, anyway there's the, the yeah the, all the formless Brahma realms are up above. So the Asanya Sata Brahma realm uh, it's uh, it's specially reserved for those beings who have de- developed. Uh, uh, meditation and have lived very wholesome lives and have um, been very committed in uh, in their spiritual development a very good sila and so forth um, but where the meditation has been based on the, the negation of of sense experience so basically the it's sort of a purification or peace through switching off and, and negating seeing hearing smelling tasting touching thinking so that it's a uh, those who have Spent uh, many hours, days, years learning how to 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 shut down and to dissociate from the sense world, and so this is a very high Brahma realm. So beings that are born into the Asanya Sata Brahma realm, they are born with in a Brahma palace with this kind of huge and beautiful Brahma body, and all around is this beautiful landscape, and the lifespan is you know ten thousand eons. But for the entire lifetime, you are unconscious. <laughs> You're completely unconscious for the whole lifespan. Unconscious. Asanya means not perceiving. So that, that, so that it's, it's based on a lot of wholesome karma. But you're, you're completely out of it the whole lifetime. So you don't even know that you've been born there. So whether you're into cosmology and mythology or not, it, it's at least as a sort of spiritual message, it's a it's a good. Uh, <laughs> it carries a a, a, a helpful meaning that uh, if you build your meditation around just switching the world off, I'm going to make this beautiful interior space, and no one's allowed in. Nothing's allowed in. I'm just going to get completely chilled in my own little <laughs> bubble, and nothing is going to get in. And you can get really good at walling everything off. And keeping it out, and just dissociating from from the sense world. Uh, but if you do that, then at the end of this life, you might have a, a st- all of that good karma created by your meditation could be ripening in the Asanyasata Brahma realm. So it's rather like you inherit a a huge amount of money from um, from a, a, your auntie, auntie Flo, who passes away, uh, but it goes into a bank account that you don't know about. And then it's been sitting there, it sits there for 30 years, and the bank crashes and it's all gone. So you had like millions and millions of pounds sitting there and you never used it. It's like you inherited this massive fortune, uh, but then, but then when you, then, then uh, 
that you get a message 30 years later saying, um, we want to let you know that your bank has crashed and that all the resources that you had in the bank uh, have disappeared. And you go, what resources? <laughs> I didn't have any money in that bank. Well, yes, you actually have 45 million pounds in that bank. But, the, but you haven't anymore. The bank's crashed. It's all gone. <laughs> okay. So uh, <clears throat> beware of the Asanyasata Brahma realm. And uh, many years ago, uh, I was leading a retreat here, um, and I was teaching this particular kind of uh, mindfulness of breathing, the way you, it's a sort of mindfulness of breathing combined with metta meditation. And so you focus on the, the heart center, and sort of, uh, focus on the breath at the, at, the, uh, at the heart rather than the nostrils or wherever. And you use also a, a kind of some reflections on, on loving kindness along with the breathing. And uh, one of the people on the retreat, she had a, a very uh, high-pressure job. She was a senior administrator at a psychiatric hospital. So she and she said, one of those people who work in psychiatric hospitals said that you know the staff are much much crazier than the inmates. So it was a, a really stressful, high high uh, uh, intensity work situation. But she had really good samadhi. She said, so I had this really difficult work situation, and it's very intense. But I can come home. And I, I uh, go to my meditation room and I sit down and I've got this, this really kind of um, beautiful, clear space. And he said, it's like, what, what you've done on this retreat, she, well, she actually, when she came into the interview, she said, I'm, I'm very angry with you, Ajahn. She smiled sweetly and said, I'm really angry with you. And she described the situation. So she said, so I'd sit down to meditate and I'm just in this beautiful, clear space. The whole world is, a, is just at a distance. I just sit there, mm, peace, clarity, bliss. <sighs> and you've ruined it. So it's like I had this beautiful attic. Everything was white, bright with skylights and beautiful, um, perfect white carpets. Everything is pure and clean. And, and I've just discovered what the kids have been doing down on the lower stories. You know, I've been hiding up in my attic, and and, uh, and 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 now I've had to come. I've had to come down from the attic to find out the chaos that the kids have been uh, getting into, while I've been hiding away in my uh, in my my kind of upper story. And so that uh, you know, so she said, "I hate you, Ajahn," <laughs> with a big smile, like you you've ruined my life. But she was also somewhat grateful because it was like that she. Developed through having really good samadhi, she developed this kind of bubble that she could hide in, and and she was good at it. But then also she realized there's a lot like the kids causing havoc in the house without when you don't pay attention to the teenagers. That there's other parts of her life are in chaos and were uh, very unaddressed and and out of out of balance, and so that this the effects of this particular meditation was forcing her to look through the rest of the house and not just hide away in her beautiful little uh, attic space. We'll leave it there for today.